We are coming close to the end of this book. Proverbs 28 and 29. This tonight will conclude what we've called the compilation of the Solomonic Proverbs. That is the Proverbs that King Hezekiah's friends put together and compiled in this section. And it concludes with the end of chapter 29. And then we'll hit into the last two chapters are fascinating. The words of Agur and the uh, words of Lemuel. And we're going to find out who Agur and Lemuel are and what they have to say. uh, What wisdom they have that's part of this book. But tonight, I was looking at these two chapters and, and thinking them through and trying to pray them through. And what I discovered, as with a lot of the Proverbs, is that there are certain verses that that fit a theme, but they're spread out throughout. And remember, we talked about that. I I believe the reason that they're so scattered, that there's not just a section on this topic and a section on this topic and a section here, is because God wants us to stop and consider every verse. So we have to figure that one out and hear it, and hear these words of wisdom in this proverb before moving on to the next one. But then as we go through, as you've seen... Sometimes we hit one that, oh wait, but we heard that before. Yeah, God is reinforcing. He's emphasizing. He's repeating so that it will get in our heads. But what I'm going to do tonight is a little bit different with these two. Um, We're going to, instead of taking them verse by verse straight through chapters 28 and 29, we're going to take them in themes. So I'm going to jump you all over these two chapters. By the time we're done, we will have covered every single verse of chapter 28 and 29. But we're going to look at them thematically. Think of it like squares on a patchwork quilt. Okay, We're going to take one square at a time. Each square is a theme. I know that you know Spencer and John spend a lot of time quilting. <laughs> so they'll understand this metaphor. But these sayings together, when woven together, form a beautiful picture of righteousness. So what we really get into tonight is the wisdom of righteousness and how gaining godly wisdom, part and parcel of that is is going for righteousness. It's growing in righteousness. It's developing as righteous saints. And for some of us, that's kind of hard to swallow. Wait a minute, me righteous? Well, we'll get into that. But tonight, these are themes of righteousness. And Father, you know, to, to even be talking about righteousness before you would be absolutely arrogant and bold-faced if not for Jesus. And so we thank you for the righteousness that only comes by Him and through Him. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that as you lead us through these sections, through these themes, pulling verse after verse, putting it all together, that you will give us this picture, this, this deeper understanding. And may we hear your will for us tonight. May we constantly be a people who are dynamic in our faith, not static, not staying in the same place, but changing, ever-growing, ever-altered by the power of Your Spirit and the truth of Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first theme, or square, for our patchwork quilt, the righteousness of the lion. The righteousness of the lion. So you can get a picture even of what that might look like. The righteousness of a lion. Verse 1, chapter 28. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I am righteous. Can you say that? Say that with me. I am righteous. 
Say it one more time. Let me hear everyone say this. I am righteous. If you can't say, I am righteous, humbly and honestly, there's one of two problems going on here. Either, A, you're not in Christ. And therefore, you don't even really know what this whole righteousness thing is about. Is that being churchy? Is that being religious? No, it's not. But perhaps there's not an understanding there because you are not in Christ. Or, if you are in Christ and you can't say, I am righteous, you've been misinformed. Because you cannot be in Christ without being fully righteous. That's what he does. That is the righteousness of the lion. It makes us bold. Romans 8.10, Paul says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. By His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. And Paul cries out in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If my righteousness can be gained by what I do, then the cross was a farce. (laughs) But it's not so. The only righteousness I have, which is my full righteousness, the complete covering of righteousness, is because of what Jesus did at Calvary. So that... I'm righteous. I can sit here without arrogance, without pride, and honestly say to each of you tonight, I am righteous, and so are you. That's what the blood of Christ does. And Solomon says the righteous are bold as a lion. The righteous are bold. They don't shrink back. They're not cowardly. The Hebrew word for bold there, good word, batak. The righteous are batak as a lion. It means confident trust. Listen, understand, this word boldness, but talk, confident trust, which implies that it doesn't come from me. That my boldness, I'm confidently trusting in someone else, which is why I'm bold. I don't confidently trust in my ability to walk the Christian walk, or to keep the faith, or to do all the right things, but I am bold in the confidence that's in Christ Jesus. Proverbs 14.26 told us, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and His children will have refuge. We're confident in the righteousness that comes from Christ. That's the confidence, the boldness of a lion. And you you all know this. Everyone bears the guilt of the sin nature. Until, until we recognize that Jesus both dealt guilt dealt both guilt and sin, I'll get it out, that Jesus dealt guilt and sin a fatal blow at the cross. Guilt and sin. A lot of Christians believe that Jesus dealt sin a fatal blow, but guilt's another thing. That's something I need to hang on to a little longer. I need to wallow a bit, you know, in in the guilt of my my former life, of my past existence, all those things back there. I'm, I'm still clinging to that guilt. No, Jesus killed guilt. Along with sin itself. What's interesting is if I remain outside of Christ, if I don't understand this, rather than being bold, I will be, as the first verse tells us, fleeing when no one's pursuing. Have you ever just had the desire 
in the middle of a movie to shout fire? <laughs> Me either. <laughs> just wondering. Just, I'm just asking. Fleeing with no pursuer. I mean, can you imagine what would happen if you shout fire? The, the, the theater would empty out, everybody would run out into the parking lot, and you'd have the whole place to yourself. <laughs> Fleeing with no pursuer. That's what it means to live outside of Christ. There's a constant looking over your shoulder. A constant sense of, uh, something's going to catch up with me here. A constant dread, maybe it's beneath the surface, maybe it's buried deep, but it's there, that nagging sensation that eventually, my sin's going to find me out. Well, you're right. (laughs) Numbers 32.23 tells us, be sure, your sin will find you out. And the world deals with that guilt. And religion comes along and says, work it out. Work out your guilt. That's how you do it. You work hard. You pour yourself into ministry. But unfortunately, in the world, religious people are some of the most guilt-ridden. Because working it out doesn't work. The guilt's still there. So psychology comes along and says, no, don't work your guilt out. Transfer it to others. (laughs) You know? It was my dad. It was my mother who did this to me. It's my choices. It's, it's something genetic that's been passed along. It's not my fault. Passing the guilt on. And that, that's, you know, it's simplistic, but that's exactly what psychology attempts to do. Take the guilt and put it on someone else. That doesn't work either. Now you feel guilty and bad for putting it on someone else. <laughs> Society comes along and says, drown the guilt with pleasure. Just forget about it. You know? Do some more drugs. Have another drink. Go to another party. Take another vacation. Whatever you got to do to forget about the fact that you are guilty. The problem is we wake up and there it is. It's still there. The key to disabling guilt is the righteousness of Christ by faith. And there's only one way to get it. Look down at verse 13 of chapter 28. Talking about the righteousness of the lion here. The righteous or bold as a lion. Down in verse 13. It says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Verse 14, how blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Verse 1 of chapter 29, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken. Beyond remedy. To stiffen the neck, to harden the heart with human arrogance can only leave us broken down. And so the only way to be relieved of both sin and guilt is to confess. Tell Him. Tell the Lord. Openly and honestly. We still, I think, suffer from that childhood anxiety of being caught. Of having to confess to mom and dad that horrific thing that we did and getting busted for it. But the Bible says time and time again, acknowledge your sin, confess your sin, tell the Lord what He already knows. That is how the guilt is removed. Because, as He says in verse 13, He who confesses and forsakes them, that is His transgressions, will find compassion. David knew this. Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin, David says. So Christians, which most of you are, 
We can get rid of the sin. We can say, I've been forgiven of the sin. But that guilt that's lingering there, hey, confess your sins to the Father. And David says the guilt is taken away. The guilt is forgiven. Isaiah 55, verse 7, the Lord says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Doesn't that just make you want to sing? You know? But how can I keep from singing (laughs) when I realize I have been abundantly pardoned? I don't function in that. I don't wallow in that guilt anymore. Verse 6 of chapter 29 says, By transgression an evil man is ensnared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. And it's hard to sing and rejoice if you haven't accepted or believed that you are righteous. Man, here's a new thing to say in the morning. I've been giving you stuff to say every now and then or a way to wake up with the Lord. How about waking up, popping off the pillow and saying, I am righteous. Start the day that way. I am righteous. And at the end of the day, don't lie down and go, I was righteous. You know, when I woke up, the first about five seconds, I was righteous and then my feet hit the floor and it was over. I am righteous. In the flesh I struggle. But I am washed clean. I am a righteous man in the sight of the Lord. Be bold and confident and rejoice in the righteousness of the lion. Second, second piece of of quilting here, the second square for for our patchwork. Number two, the right kind of leadership. The right kind of leadership. Back in chapter 28, verse 2. By the transgression of a land, many are its princes. But by a man of understanding and knowledge, so it endures. You can almost track through the history of Israel the righteous kings versus the rebellious kings based on how long they sat on the throne. It's interesting. Now, there were a couple of wicked kings who were there a long time, and I think it's because God was allowing the wickedness to really work its way through the people so they could feel the full weight of their sin. But by and large, the righteous kings ruled long And the wicked kings ruled very short. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, three months each on the throne in Judah. Shalom in Israel, he lasted one month. And you look at both the kings of Israel and Judah, and it should have been long-term reigning for each of these kings. You know, And it should have stayed in the line of David there for the kings of Judah. Long ruling. But King Solomon is saying here that when a land or a nation transgresses, it crosses over the boundaries of God's righteousness, the land will become unstable. The nation becomes unstable. Governmental turnover is constant. Apply that to where we're living these days. Governmental turnover is constant in a land that has transgressed the righteousness of God. Talk about relevant to what's going on right now. We go from one president to another, Congress after Congress, and you know what? Nothing changes. The problem isn't with each individual president or each individual congressman. The problem is a national problem. We talked about it a little bit on Sunday, the Israel side of that national problem. But it's much more than that. When a country transgresses God's righteousness, there's constant turnover in leadership. And that's what he's saying in verse 2. Look at verse 3. A stone is heavy... Oh, I'm sorry. That's chapter 27. Verse 3, chapter 28. We're going to keep going forward tonight. 
A poor man who oppresses the lowly is like a driving rain which leaves no food. Now I need to explain something here. The poor man is not what you think. We're not talking about some bum on Skid Row. We're talking the poor man here about an oppressive ruler. The poor man is an oppressive ruler. Where do you get that? It's interesting, the word poor here in the Hebrew is rush, which is not typically the word that's used for someone who's impoverished. The word rush means needy. But it's coupled, the word man, it's not adam, which is the typical word for man, it's the word geber that we've talked about before, which means mighty man. So you have rush geber, the needy mighty man is who we're talking about. And the needy, mighty man who oppresses the lowly is like a driving rain which leaves no food. That word lowly there, by the way, is the typical word for the poor person, dal. D-A-L is typically what's used in the Hebrew to talk about a poor man. So we have the needy, mighty man who is, a basically, he's a poor ruler. That's what he is. He's a poor ruler because he's oppressive. He's dangerous because this kind of ruler that's being described here, this unrighteous ruler, this needy mighty man, is like a driving rain that leaves no food or bread. I'm not going to go there. I could easily go there. I'm not going to go there. This is the ruler, the, the leader the king, the president, the prime minister, whose personal drive for power wipes out the land. He pounds away at the citizenry like a downpour. And when he's done with his rule, there's no bread left. The deficit reduction bill was signed into law this week, yesterday, raising the deficit by $7 trillion over the next decade. The stock market, of course, immediately replied with great joy, tumbling 266 points. I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, wow, are, are, we, are the people not getting exactly what they've asked for? By the way, I can track this back not two and a half or three years, but decades in America uh, of this kind of up and down, constant changing, and yet nothing gets done. And yet government goes from bad to worse, and yet the people continue to have to suffer by the decisions that are being made. And it's because, again, of unrighteousness in the land. God is saying, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. I'm going to give you what you've asked for. He is giving the people, dare I say it, what we deserve. And I am so thankful for all of this that my bread is provided by a righteous God. That no matter how great and glorious America is, or how down and depressed America may be, my bread's provided by a righteous king. One who, who truly is good and righteous. Verse 10, going on in chapter 28, continuing this right kind of leadership. He who leads the upright astray in an evil way will himself fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit good. Verse 12, when the righteous triumph, there's great glory. But when the wicked rise, men hide themselves. And isn't that the case? When in tumultuous times, when things are just not right, people sense they're not right, they pull back. That's what happened in Wall Street this week. Investors saying, we're not going to risk it. We can't trust what's going to happen here. 
And people will wait and watch to see what's going to happen. But remember this, though people shrink back at the rise of wickedness, the righteous don't. The righteous remain as bold as a lion. Not afraid to speak the truth. Not afraid to stand up for Jesus no matter how bad things get. I'm not expecting or planning for things to get bad. Although they may. You know, we have no idea when the rapture is going to happen. We don't know when we're going to go home. We don't know how bad things will get before that time. And as I've said before, if you look across the history of the church, people in the church have lived under far more devastating persecution than any of us have ever experienced. Might we go through some of that? Yeah. But our bread comes from the righteous ruler. And we, the Hebrew writer says, do not shrink back to destruction. We are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Verse 15 of chapter 28. Again, this right leading. Verse 15, yeah, like a roaring lion and a rushing bear is a wicked ruler over a poor person. Just one attack after another. A leader who is a great oppressor lacks understanding. But he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. And you could almost infer will prolong his rule. One who walks in integrity. One who is not unjust with his ways of doing things. I just I don't think God is all too impressed with politics. I really don't. You know, this whole idea of decisions based on polling and people pleasing and how they might ultimately affect re-election, that's one of the biggest problems we have in our country is our government leaders are too concerned about the next election. And I, I let me be political just for a second here, and this is just my opinion, and feel free to disagree, that's okay. But this whole debt reduction bill, you know why it was signed? You know why it came about? It was politicians afraid of the next election. And trying to find a way to work it out so that they could come out on top so when the next election cycle comes, they can be re-elected. That's, that's what drove this thing. I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't already know. Verse 28 of chapter 28 says, When the wicked rise, men hide themselves. But when they perish, the righteous increase. Gang, there's a way of leading that is good and right. The way of leading that we see in Jesus the one true great ruler. Proverbs 29, verse 2, going on with this theme, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. (laughs) Verse 4, the king gives stability to the land by justice. See, that's, that's something that, it's not connected, again, in the minds of our politicians, that, that justice has an impact on prosperity. That a spiritual or a moral thing might actually have a direct direct impact on physical and social policy. But the Bible says that's exactly what happens. A land that is just, a land that is merciful, a land that is loving and compassionate and gracious. When that, when the morals are there, prosperity follows. When the morals are set aside, when a society becomes godless, inevitably, down the tube it goes. The king gives stability to the land by justice, but a man who takes bribes overthrows it. Down in verse 12. If a ruler pays attention to falsehood, all his ministers become wicked. Which is that whole thing about who do you surround yourself with? You know, you can tell a good ruler 
by His counselors, by those who walk with Him. Continuing on, verse 13. The poor man and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. What does that mean? It means all people are the same. It means whether you're poor or rich makes no difference. You're still, before God, you still stand at equal footing at the cross. Every single person, poor or rich, has need. Every person, whether they're the rich oppressor or the poor person being oppressed, makes no difference. God gives light to everybody's eyes. God has given life to each and every one of us. And verse 14, if a king judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. And that's something that's often forgotten in in areas and positions of authority. That the leader is not above the people. No matter how high you make the platform, the leader is not above the people. Truth is above the people. Truth is the standard, not power. And that's what the Bible is saying so clearly here. If a king judges the poor with truth, it's truth. I can see Jesus standing there before Pilate when one of the most ironic questions in all history was asked, what is truth? Pilate said. You're looking at him. He is in the face of Jesus who said, I am the truth. And and when Jesus said the truth will set you free, He wasn't talking about some concept, some principle or philosophy. He was talking about Himself. The truth will set you free. What is truth? Pilate asked. Truth is Jesus, which is why in the church there is only one true authority. And it's not Pastor Rick. Can I hear an amen? Thank you. It's not Pastor Les. Can I hear a louder amen? Amen. Alright, good. It's not the shepherds. It's not the pastoral staff. It's not someone who's been put in charge of a ministry or an area to work. No. The one authority is Jesus. He's the senior pastor. He's the one in charge. He's the only one. As Paul said in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Christ is the head. He's the ruler. He's the authority. And until He comes to reign, listen, until He comes to reign, the right kind of leadership is established and maintained by the truth. See, until He's here, answering every question, pointing us in every direction that this world needs to go, this is the standard. The truth. It's the standard for church. What is it that defines your church? How many churches have belief statements, philosophies, mission statements, all these other statements that use Scripture to say this is what we're about instead of just saying this is what we're about? I think some of you know we we have a belief statement. It's kind of part of the requirement of having a bylaws, you know? Well, why don't you print them out and put them in back? Because that's not really our belief statement. It's a legal document. This is our belief statement. And the shepherds are very aware, and you all know, if what we're doing comes into conflict with this, then we go to our belief statement and we change it so that it's in line with this. Because it's the truth that is our standard in church. It's the truth that is the standard for the home. 
A home that is that is not running on truth, that is hiding sin, that's keeping things kind of cornered. You know, wait till the kids go to bed. I'll tell you what, the kids may never see the parent's sin, but they will still follow after the parent's sin. It's it's a stunning thing. They may not even be aware of what's going on in a tangible, you know, conscious sense. But it's incredible how kids follow what the parents are doing. If truth is the standard in the home, it's a different thing. Truth is the standard for government. It was when our country was founded. At least it was the concept by which we were founded. Chapter 29, verse 16. A little bit more on this. When the wicked increase, transgression increases, but the righteous will see their fall. Verse 26. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. When I read all of these verses we've just read, all these different Proverbs that talk about leadership, appropriate leadership, the right kind of leadership, it's so apparent who we're talking about here. Think about what you've heard. A man of understanding who establishes the land, chapter 28, verse 2. A righteous triumph in great glory, chapter 28, verse 12. Righteousness increasing as wickedness perishes, chapter 28, verse 28. A king who gives stability to the land by justice, 29, verse 4. A king who judges the poor and the lowly with truth, 29, verse 14. And justice that comes from the Lord. It is all talking about pointing us to the right kind of leadership that this world will see when Jesus comes. Won't that be awesome? I mean, there will be no more guessing as to... There's not going to be any parties... No, well, there's going to be a lot of partying, but there's not going to be, you know, political parties, factions. Oh, there's the Jesus party, but then there's the Pharisees, and they, you know they've got quite a following this year. You know, when the election comes, there's no election. One ruler, one absolute dictator, Jesus Christ, who is absolutely perfect, absolutely righteous, and we're going to see how that works. This world will for a thousand years know exactly what perfect, righteous rule looks like. Zechariah 6.13, Yes, it is He who will build the temple of the Lord. He will bear the honor and sit and rule on His throne. He will be a priest on His throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices. That is, of, of priest and of king. But one of the stunning truths about that, knowing the righteousness of Jesus... And the world functioning under the perfect righteous rule of a perfect king for a thousand years, even for all of that, there is still going to be an undercurrent of rebellion. Wow. Revelation chapter 20 verse 7 says, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. But here's the breathtaking sentence. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. This is after a thousand years of perfect righteousness. God is going to let Satan lose. Why would he do that? Well, he's going to prove a point. That even in the presence of absolute righteousness, it is only by giving your heart to Jesus Christ that you can become righteous. Oh, you can live under righteous rule. You can be there in the perfect kingdom, but if you haven't given your heart to Jesus Christ, then as now, you're not going to be righteous. And when the opportunity comes to rebel against righteousness, you 
will rebel. I'm not you, but I'm, you know, I'm saying generically. Look at verse 27 of chapter 29. An unjust man is abominable to the righteous, but, or and, he who is upright in the way is abominable to the wicked. And for a thousand years, Jesus will be upright in the way, but even in His physical presence, people will still choose to rebel. People will choose wickedness. People will turn against Him because the uprightness will be abominable to them. What's the point? You've got to give Jesus your heart. You give Him your heart now, in faith you are saved. You give Him your heart during the Millennial Kingdom, someone who is alive at that time in the flesh, giving Jesus their heart, they will be saved. But there will be many who don't give Him their hearts. And though they get all the benefits of perfect righteousness, yet their wickedness will cause them to fall. Now the standard we've seen for righteous leadership is truth. So the next piece of patchwork for the quilt, number three, is the rule of law. The rule of law. There are only five mentions. And I found this interesting. In the entire book of Proverbs, there are only five times that the word Torah for law is used. Only five times in the whole book. And they're all right here in these two chapters. The rule of law. Verse 4, chapter 28. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked. But those who keep the law strive with them. The word law, again, there is Torah. Verse 5, Even evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. Our understanding of truth and of righteousness and of justice is rooted in Torah. You know? It's not truth, justice in the American way. It's truth, justice from the Torah. Because that's where the American way originally came from. Was Torah law. The Old Testament as it's called. The Hebrew Scriptures. The Ten Commandments. The law of God. Our American judicial system, and you all know this, is Mosaic. It came through the law given through Moses. But they're striving today. In the courts and in our legal system and in our country, there's an incredible striving between those who see the rule of law as relative and changeable and alterable depending on the culture and those who believe in the standard of truth, the absolutes of the Word of God. This nation was far more righteous in the past than it is today. Why? Because it was based in and on the rule of law. It wasn't perfect. There was sin abounding then as there is now. Things were done wrong. However, the nation prospered and grew and was righteous because it was based in the absolutes of Torah. This Judeo-Christian ethic value that we had grounded and rooted in Torah law. Now what does he mean, those who seek the Lord? Note that in in verse 5. Those who seek the Lord understand all things. I read that and I thought, well, I seek the Lord and I don't understand all things. (laughs) Maybe that's you. I'm seeking the Lord, but I don't get everything. There are times when when Rick is teaching, and we're in the Word, and for 15 or 20 minutes, I don't have a clue what he's talking about. Well, welcome to the club. What does it mean? Those who seek the Lord understand all things. Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For their foolishness to him, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or literally spiritually judged. 
But he who is spiritual judges all things, understands all things. Yet he himself is judged by no one. Jesus is the only judge that you have if you're walking in the Spirit. And so what this is talking about, that those who seek the Lord understand all things, is we are led into a place of, of understanding that is beyond ourselves. We get things. We see what's going on in the world. The veil is lifted when we confess faith in Jesus. And so we do begin to understand in ways that we would not have understood otherwise. And we've talked about so much here, the wonderful dynamic between the Word of God, the truth, you know, grounded truth, the absolutes, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And discernment, understanding, is developed by both. It's developed by the work of the Spirit in our lives. It's developed by our understanding of the Word in our lives. Look at verse 7. He who keeps Torah, the law, is a discerning son, but he who is a companion of gluttons humiliates his father. Gluttons there. Uh, there are probably better translations of this. It should be riotous or wild. Okay, the word for glutton means a, a wild person. And so he who keeps Torah is a discerning son, but he who is a companion of the riotous humiliates his father. That's the third use of the word Torah here in the book. Discernment. If you keep Torah, if you keep the Word of God, you will be discerning. You will have the gift of discernment, the gift of wisdom. Now, understand, I say the gift of discernment, there's a spiritual gift of discernment that not every one of us will have. Not everyone's going to be handed the gift of discernment. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another the gift of faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing or or discernment of spirits. When we talk about the gift of discernment, there is a spiritual gift, Paul says, that some are given, not everyone, not everyone has it. Certain people in the body are given the gift of discernment. But listen, all people of the truth, all followers of Jesus Christ are given the tool of discernment. There are those who will have the gift of discernment and it specifically has to do with spirits. Having a sense about somebody or something going on that is spiritual in nature. You can, you can say, there's something going on here. It's like that something's niggling at the back of your spirit. You know, you're going, something's not right with this situation or, or this person's carrying something here. And there are people who have that spiritual gift. Not everyone will. But we all are called to be discerning people. And we are given the gift of the Word which teaches us to be understanding and to be discerning. By which we can better hear the Spirit. And this word through which we can discern truth. So you may not be given the gift of discernment, but you are still called to be discerning as a follower of Jesus. Got the difference? Alright. By the way, the difference in verse 7 between the discerning son and the companion of the riotous, the difference is just who they're hanging out with. The discerning son is obviously with the father. The one who's hanging out with the riotous, well, that's kind of obvious there. Verse 9. 
He who turns away his ear from listening to Torah, even his... You know what I mean when I say Torah, right? Verse 5. Church calls it the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Torah. Although, the implication here goes beyond. Okay, there's Torah, which is that, that hub in the beginning. But it's the Word of God that's being relayed to us to understand here. So again, he who turns away his ear from listening to the law, to Torah, even his prayer is an abomination. Jesus said many times, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. In Revelation, seven times in chapters 2 and 3, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you've got ears, listen up. Pay attention. But it's as if the Lord is saying here in verse 9 that even His prayer is an abomination. It's like God saying, why should, why should I listen to you when you refuse to listen to me? It's a good question. Why should I expect God, as many people do, why should I expect God to listen to me, to hear my word, when I refuse to look into His word? Peter, 1 Peter 3.12, quoting Psalm 34.15, says, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Why should I expect God to listen to me if I refuse to listen to Him? May I make a suggestion here? When you feel like your prayers are not being heard, you've been asking the same thing, you've been weeping over it, you've been struggling with it, you keep bringing it before the Lord, and it's not changing let me encourage you, when your prayers aren't being heard, go to the Word. Because it's entirely likely God isn't saying a thing because it's right here. And rather than give you an immediate easy answer, He's just waiting for you to open up the book and to be captured there. To find understanding there. Go to the Word. Seek the answer in Scripture. Sometimes God just wants our fingers to do the walking. Verse 18 of chapter 28 Staying with this rule of law. He who walks blamelessly will be delivered. But he who is crooked will fall all at once. Walking straight. The way to walk straight is by the light of the Word. The light of truth. The rule of law. It gives us direction. It shows us how to walk straight. Again, it's not about being legalistic, but it is about pursuing righteousness. And what the Word teaches as we ingest, take it in, follow it, live by it, we become more sanctified people. As the Spirit's working hand in hand with it. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You want to walk straight? You walk by the word of God. On the other foot, he who is crooked, it says, will fall all at once. The word crooked, there's an interesting word in the Hebrew. It means he who is perverse of two ways. Perverse of two ways. It's like you don't even know which way you're going. I'm perverse this way and I'm perverse that way and then you, I'm just confused. That's where it lands. The crooked person. Down in verse 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But he who walks wisely will be delivered. Listen, when someone says, what does your heart tell you? Do yourself a favor. Be sure before you answer that what your heart tells you is what Jesus has already told your heart. Make sure the source is the Spirit of God. 
Now, if the Spirit is in your heart, and you ask, what is my heart saying? But what you're saying is, what is my heart that is enveloped by Jesus? Jesus, what are you saying about this? <laughs> That's one thing. But the world says, follow your heart. I love what Rich Mullins sang about that. The world says, follow my heart, but my heart just led me into my chest. <laughs> it's a great word. <laughs> no, if you trust your own heart, you're a fool. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Chapter 29, verse 18, skipping ahead. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. And that's the fifth one right there. Happy is he who keeps Torah, who keeps the law. Now, this is a great... We could do a whole sermon on this proverb. I won't tonight. But there are three things in here to note. Three words. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. And happy is he who keeps the law. Vision, the word vision there. Hatzon in the Hebrew, revelation. Revelation. Where there is no revelation, the people are unrestrained. The word for unrestrained in the Hebrew is para. And para means uncovered or naked. Where there's no revelation, people are naked. Without revelation, there is no covering. What does that mean? It means without the revelation of God in your life, you're on your own. Good luck. Have fun. You're uncovered. Like Israel in the wilderness, their covering was a cloud by day and the fire by night. God had them covered. But when they wandered away from God, when they transgressed and went across the line, they came out from under His covering and it was always punishment. It was always problematic. But where there is revelation from the Lord, whether it's the Spirit of God speaking into your heart, the Word of God revealing things to you, or even the great revelation, the book of Revelation, which gives us direction and an end point that we can clearly see. Where there is no revelation, the people are uncovered, but happy or blessed is he who keeps the law. Blessed, a share is the word. Torah, the law, speaks again of the entire word or revelation of God. And without it, without this book, gang, we are uncovered. We try to walk without the truth and we get uncovered. And it happens. It happens easily. It happens to me. I find myself... Part of the reason that I, that I spend as much time in study as I do is because I found in my life, in teaching, that it was so easy in teaching for me to get off on some weird tangent that truly was not biblical. I'm talking several years ago, but as a youth pastor, man, I could ping off of verses right and left, come up with interesting or funny examples... And go back and think about what I said and realize, boy, I'm not even sure that was biblical. So we stay with the Word, which is truth. And we know what it says. And we don't get uncovered. We get blessed. The rule of law. Righteousness of the lion. The right kind of leadership. Number four. Number four. Riches that lead to loss. Riches that lead to loss. Back in chapter 28, verse 6. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. And it's that crooked, perverse in two directions again. Better is he who walk, the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. Verse 8. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. 
What does that mean? Well, Jesus used the example of the rich man and Lazarus. Both men end up in Hades. And in Hades, you remember the story, the rich man's on the torment side. And all he wants is just a drop of water. And Lazarus is on the paradise side, and they're separated by a great chasm, an impassable gulf. Here's what's interesting about Jesus talking about the rich man and Lazarus. It is not a parable. Do you know that it's the it's one of the few quote unquote stories that Jesus told where he did not say, Let me tell you a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. He just says there was once a rich man, and there was a man named Lazarus. And the fact that he names Lazarus, you know, Jesus doesn't name characters in parables. His parables are all about nameless individuals. Even the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, the son is not named, the father's not named, the brother's not named. But in the story that Jesus tells us of the rich man and Lazarus, there's a guy's name here. And people are used. Abraham's brought into it. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom on the paradise side of Hades. Great gulf. And Jesus is not talking stuff of fables, stories, parables, or myth. He's talking, I'm absolutely convinced, of what happened when people died before the cross. When you died before the cross, if you lived a life of faith, if you believed in God, if you trusted Him with your life, before Jesus died, you went to the paradise side of Hades. If you did not, you went to the torment side. Both are Sheol, but there's a good side and a bad, and you can't cross over then Jesus died on the cross. And we're told that when Jesus died on the cross, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that He descended and He led captivity captive. Those who were captive in Sheol, captive in death, He led to be with Him. What are you talking about? Spirits of those who died in faith. He effectively shut down the paradise side of Hades and brought all those who died in faith, their spirits, to be with Him in heaven. So they're with Him in heaven. Yeah. Are you sure? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says God will bring with Him the spirits of those who have fallen asleep. So yes, they are with Him. Paul said after the crucifixion that that to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, I could go off on all of that. But in this, in this parable, oh, it's not a parable. In this teaching, in this example that Jesus gives, He also gives insight into the value of life now versus life eternal. And that it's eternal life that matters. That the rich man, if he could do it all over, would have done it over. The rich man begged, well, send Lazarus back to my brothers and my father so they can hear. And you remember what Jesus said? Even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe. You know what's curious? A man named Lazarus did rise from the dead. Could it have been that Lazarus in the three days of his... We'll just leave that there, let it sit. (laughs) This is the difference, though, between pursuing life now, riches now, and the riches of eternity then. Verse 11, chapter 28, The rich man is wise in his own eyes. But the poor, Dal is the word again, the poor who has understanding (laughs) sees through him. What do you mean, Solomon? Riches don't indicate wisdom. In fact, some of the most foolish people in the world 
are some of the most wealthy. Verse 19 in chapter 28. He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. Now he's not talking about the pursuit of prosperity, he's talking about plowing for plenty. But the word plenty doesn't mean prosperity, it just means you'll have enough. You'll have enough. With Jesus, there is always enough. It doesn't mean the house is going to be overflowing, that you've got to fill your barns with all your extra stuff. It doesn't mean you're going to have bigger and bigger and better and greater. It means you'll always have enough. Right, Shell? I mean, he just makes sure that there's always enough. Just man, roll up your sleeves and till the, till the kingdom. You know, plow the ground. Let's harvest. Let's get about the business of the kingdom and all these things will be added to us as well. There will always be enough. And the principle in this proverb is working for contentment. It's just working and being content. Ask yourself this question. What does it take for me to be content? What does it take? Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, we've brought nothing into the world. So we're not going to take anything out of it either. That's just a good word. Job said, naked I came into the world, naked I'm going out. So even my Israel shirt, Donna, it's not going with me. (laughs) Paul says, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And tragically, I've seen great followers of Jesus start going down the road of riches and it devastates them. Be content with what you have. Praise God for what He's given. Whether it be a lot or a little, I guarantee you, you follow the Lord, it will always, always be enough. Chapter 28, verse 20. A faithful man will abound with blessings. But he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. And then he adds this verse, he says, To show partiality, verse 21, is not good, because for a piece of bread man will transgress. A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that want will come upon him. What does verse 21 mean there in the middle? He's talking about here that it's faithfulness and righteousness that yields blessing, not rushing after material things. And verse 21 is, again, it's a verse here that's inserted, I believe, between verses 20 and 22, because rich or poor, the heart is the same. There is no difference in showing partiality, because rich or poor, the heart's exactly the same. No matter how much I have in the bank, if I'm hungry enough, I'm going to sin over a slice of bread. That's what he's saying. You can have a huge portfolio, but if you're starving, you'll sin over a piece of bread. You can have nothing, and if you're starving, you'll sin over a piece of bread. So there's no difference between people, rich or poor. Again, we're all the same. Verse 24, he who robs his father or his mother and says, it's not a transgression, is the companion of a man who destroys. Staying in the same vein of unrighteous wealth, the Pharisees had a practice that was disgusting to Jesus. Made him sick. He said, and I quote Mark 7, 9, you are experts. And they must have gone, oh, thank you. And then he continued, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. (laughs) You guys got it down. 
For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, quote, If a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would help you is korban, well, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down, and you do many things such as that. What's korban? Korban literally means given to God. And the Pharisees had a practice of saying, you know, I've got, I've got this wealth, I've got all of this inheritance, or, or I have all this money that's come to me, but I am no longer responsible for caring for my ailing or aging parents because this is committed to the work of God. I've committed it to the church. I give it to the church. So I, I'm sorry, I can't help. I wish I could, <laughs> but I tithe. So my tithe goes to the church and I I can't help you. What they did was they took the money that they should have been caring for their parents with and they gave it to temple and laundered it right back into their own pockets. Korban. It's Korban. And at the same time, then they could say that they're oh they're also they're also committed. You know, I'm committed to the Lord, I've committed this money to him, so I'm giving it to him. So I'm sorry I can't help you out. Listen, it is my responsibility My wife taught me this. It is my responsibility, not the government's, it is not the church's, it is my responsibility to take care of my parents. They took care of me. It's my responsibility to do the same. If the need is there, that's my responsibility. And I can't pass it off and just say, oh, no, I can't afford it. You know, God, God will provide. If I leave them to themselves... The proverb says, you become the companion of a destroyer. Destroyer? Well, who's the destroyer? (laughs) Jesus said, John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And if you're following Jesus, then you are about the business of abundant life. Then you want to see to the abundant life of others, and your parents are right at the top of the list. Chapter 28, verse 27, a little further down here. He who gives to the poor will never want. But he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. Verse 7 of chapter 29. The righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor. The wicked does not understand such concern. Listen, we have an inheritance. Do you know that? That as righteous sons and daughters of the King, we have an inheritance. We are blessed with it. Paul says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And because we know we have an inheritance, then what we have now, we can give away. Because we're not going to need it. You know? We have an inheritance. The fifth aspect of the quilt here. The next couple are going to go by real quick, so hold on to your quilts. Number five, the rod of a loving parent. Chapter 29, verse 3, the rod of a loving parent. A man who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but he who keeps company with harlots wastes his wealth. Of course, the parable of the prodigal son comes right to mind with that one. Verse 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child, listen, a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Why is that? Well, because the mom who's just letting them do whatever they want to do. And eventually it will shame her. The mom who's not willing 
to discipline. The parent who says, hey, do what, yeah, we're just going to, we'll go easy. We're not a spanking family, you know. We do timeouts. of timeouts. We put David in timeout the other day. Bottom of the stairs. You sit down there and you think about what you've done. And I was thinking about this later. He's three. He sat there on the step like this. Just had that little concerned look on his face like, I know I did something. Not really sure what it was. You hear that? Cheryl said he knew exactly what he did. But there is something, we've talked about this, I won't belabor the point, but there is something about spanking that, that is immediate and it does, it does drive the rebellion out. Not brutal, abusive, I'm not talking about that, you know, but it drives out the rebellion. Verse 17, correct your son and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. So the rod of a loving parent. That's a nice little piece to put in our quilt. Number six, the ruin of living in folly. Now within this square, there are actually three little parts to it. Three other aspects of foolishness that arise in these two chapters. The ruin of living in folly. We've seen them before in the Proverbs, so let me cover them quickly. Number one, the folly of flattery. The folly of flattery. Chapter 28, verse 23. He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor. You're going to be respected if you're willing to speak the truth in love. Then he who flatters with the tongue. Chapter 29, verse 5. A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his own steps. Because flattery is nothing more than empty words without follow-through. They're words to make someone feel good so you can get around them and continue doing what you want to do. And eventually the flatterer will be seen for who he is. So the folly of flattery. Number two, the flailing of anger. The flailing of anger. Verse 8 of chapter 29. Scorners set a city aflame. But wise men turn away anger. Gentlemen especially, because I have a sense that we guys struggle with this more than the ladies do. Scorners set a city aflame, but wise men turn away anger. Verse 9, when a wise man has a controversy with a foolish man, the foolish man either rages or laughs, and there is no rest. Which is why you don't cast your pearls before swine. You know? and, and by the way, you know when you're talking to someone about Jesus, if they start to rage, they're not going to hear you. If they laugh it off or scorn or make fun, their heart's not in the right place. You're probably talking to a foolish person who's just not ready to hear the truth yet. Down in verse 11 of chapter 29, a fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. What does that tell us? That we can control anger. We can control, gentlemen, we can control our tempers. We don't have to. Well, I'm Italian. <laughs> well, I was raised this way. I was raised that way. This is my heritage. My no, no. You can control anger. You can manage it. Scripture is clear about this. Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. And Sharon and I had a practice when we first got married. We said we're not going to let the sun go down on our anger. 
And, you know, when an argument would come up or whatever, we were not going to go to sleep until that argument was dealt with. And there were some late nights. (laughs) Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry. Do not sin. The flailing of anger. Verse 22 of chapter 29. An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Because when you're angry, you're out of control. The flailing of angry, the folly of flattery, and finally, number three of the same patch here, the ruin of living and folly, the fatality of violence. Fatality of violence, chapter 28, verse 17. A man who is laden with the guilt of human blood will be a fugitive until death. Let no one support him. Who do you think he's talking about there? Cain. Cain. A man who is laden with the guilt of human blood will be a fugitive until death. And Cain was. He was a fugitive. An outcast on the earth, scared to death that whoever found him was going to kill him. And God put a mark on him so that he wouldn't be killed. And yet, let no one support him. Cain's life was a miserable life. If you go further than that, chapter 29, verse 10 on down, men of bloodshed hate the blameless. But the upright are concerned for his life. Here's the deal. Violence always leads to death. Violence always leads to death of of one kind or another. It may be actual physical death. It could be the death of relationship. It could be the death of morality. It could be the death of innocence. But violence leads to death. And the question that we as believers in Jesus have to ask is, do we value life? Because... Violence, whether it's actual or virtual, violence devalues life. I really struggle with this personally. You know, in in movies, in books, in shows that we watch, violence devalues life. And I remember, for me, it started way back as a little kid going to uh, going to the arcade. So they don't really even have that kind of thing, I guess, much anymore. The arcade, you put a quarter in the machine, you can play a little video game. And I remember the cowboy shootout. I think it was called, uh, I think it was just called Shootout. And it was pixelated, these two cowboys, one on either side of the screen, and they'd, they'd come out there and you could play against your friend and they'd go up and down and there were cactuses and stuff in the way and you'd just shoot and shoot and, and the guy would die. It's just fun, you know, and then Tank came out. Remember Tank, anybody? Tank was cool. Yeah, that was awesome. Okay, because you got your little tank on this side, there's a grid and another tank, and and you're shooting at each other and blowing each other up. Eventually what happens is as we watch violence, even virtual, we're watching it in a movie, playing it in a video game, we're watching human beings be obliterated, killed, shot, blown up, whatever. And after a while, we don't really look at human death any differently than we look at animal death. Violence devalues life. And it's a huge problem in our culture. Verse 24 in chapter 29, He who is a partner with a thief hates his own life. He hears the oath but tells nothing. In other words, when someone who has partnered up with someone, an evildoer, a wicked person, a thief, when they're sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, they have to plead the fifth. They can't speak. Because if they speak, they will indict themselves. And by the way, this proverb, verse 24 here, comes directly out of Torah law. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1, If a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, then he will bear his guilt. You plead the fifth, you're guilty. And everybody knows it. 
But you're just hiding the truth because if you tell the truth, it's going to get you in trouble. And that's what it's talking about here. On a practical level for each of us, going back to the idea of confession, when we remain silent about our sin, our guilt starts to eat away at our lives. We start to kill ourselves. Because few things are more deadly than bearing secret guilt. 2 Corinthians 6.14 tells us, Don't be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? And when as a believer you bind up with someone and wrong is happening and you got to stay silent, the guilt's going to bury you. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.22 to Timothy, Don't lay hands upon anyone hastily and thereby share the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. And we're back to where we began. We need the righteousness of the lion. We need the blood-bought righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you have, by the way, any secret sin, any silent guilt that you're pleading the fifth about, that you're holding to yourself, give it to Jesus. Just tell Him. Just tell Him and you will find, as the Word tells us, compassion. Jesus said in John 6.37, a verse to know, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. What a great word. Come to me, I'm not going to turn you away. Whatever the situation is, whatever the sin is, whatever you must confess, bring it to me. I'm not going to kick you out for it. You will find grace and compassion with Jesus. Now, we have one last patch to weave into the quilt tonight. The last one is what I will just call the relative of the Lord. We've covered all the other verses, but chapter 29, verse 19, watch this. The relative of the Lord. A slave will not be instructed by words alone. For though he understands, there will be no response. So this is talking about someone who's hearing. They get it. They're just not acting on it. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Verse 21, He who pampers his slave from childhood will in the end find him to be a son. I love that. John said in John 1 verse 12, As many as received him, to to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now the key word here to understanding these three verses together is pampers. I'm not talking about a brand of diapers here. Verse 21, He who pampers his slave from childhood will in the end find him to be a son. The word is panach in the Hebrew. And it means to treat another with extreme care. What does that mean? Gang, the relative of the Lord begins as a slave, but ends as a son. The relative of the Lord, you could put it this way, ladies, begins as a domestic in the house, but ends up as a daughter. And how does God do it? By extreme care. We all started out as slaves. We were slaves of sin. And then we gave our lives to Jesus, and we became slaves to righteousness. And in this process, throughout this life, God has been doing something with extreme care. He is transferring us from slaves to sons, domestics to daughters, the relative of the Lord. 
in our lives a tender transference is taking place. That's righteousness. We are made righteous, but we are being transferred into righteousness by the Lord. Verse 25, the last verse we haven't done. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted from slave to son. The Father prays you. Thank you, Lord, for the message, the gospel that changes lives. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would convince us of this changing truth. Be it for our own lives that we would be changed after the pattern of Jesus. Or for those around us, Father, that that we don't have the faith. We we can't believe so-and-so would be saved. or, Or this person or that person could possibly change. Father, we pray for radical salvation. We pray that we might be able to see that. That as we're out here tilling the field, and as we're working for the harvest, we could see lives changed and altered. That tender transference by a God who takes extreme care with His children. Thank You for extremely caring for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.